Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence. And this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. This podcast um, is one of the podcasts that we do on a regular basis. Uh, It's me and it's Pam Brooks Richards. Hey, Pam. Hey. Having a conversation um, where you get to sit and uh, listen to us talk about organizational values and um, how can we be the best person that we can be in an organization and how to lead from anywhere you are, whatever level you're at, you can be a leader to create an, an environment where we're not just saying the words, but we're actually act, you know, making it real, behaving like we have high performance, inclusive cultures. So one of the pillars of creating a great workplace is the level of trust people have for each other and the level of trust for themselves and the freedom that they feel that they can perform and bring their wisdom and knowledge and skills together to the workplace, to know that they are both psychologically and physically safe and that the people that they work with, even if they don't like them, they know that their their best interest is that in the team and the organization and the customers that you serve. But that's all great in your head not telling you anything you don't already know, either in your heart or in your head or someplace that you read. The question is, how do you, how do you move in organizations? How do you move in places where you don't, you don't know whether you should trust people, whether you don't know whether it is trustworthy? What are the factors that make up trust? Whether we trust others or whether others trust us? And given the, you know, the polarization of the country, why is building trust so hard? Those are the questions that we're going to talk about today. Um, There's a couple things that have come out in the research. And of course, Pam and I both work in organizations where building the foundation of trust is an important thing. And it often, that building of the foundation of trust often gets in the way for many C-suite leaders because they think more in terms of, are we getting the work done? But the work gets done when the trust factor goes up. And we're going to talk about that. So let's start with the basics. The basics. Trust. Yeah. What's trust? We talk um, about it a lot, but do we really know when we trust people? Is the research such that we know when we trust? Well, if we go back to conversational intelligence with Judith Glazer and we go to just the fundamental wiring of us, our body knows when we're not in a trusting environment. 
Mm-hmm. Fight, flight, freeze is innate in us. Mm-hmm. And when something goes, woo, I'm not safe, it triggers and, and our body responds. So it is definitely something that we are wired to evaluate for. Mm-hmm. However, I think the fascinating part comes as we start to unpack what does it mean to trust? And I know in the work from Judith and especially the work in Brene, it's when you learn how to break down the elements of things that trigger our trust, like distrust, when when mm-hmm. we are triggered in that element of not being safe mm-hmm. is where we kind of go, ooh, this isn't a trusting environment. And when we can't identify it, then we have this global like, Denise, I can't trust you. Mm-hmm. And you're like, damn, like, how do I fix that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's big. But if I go, eh, Denise, I have an issue because I've established a boundary with you and you keep pushing up against it, whatever it is. Like now I can be specific and I can say, here's the behavior. Here's the something that has pushed me into that state of saying, I'm I'm not fully jumping into this anymore. And so in Brene's work with trust, she talks about braving was her acronym acronym mm-hmm. for it. Right. And it's awesome because she talks about boundaries reliability, accountability, vault, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of talks about living big, which is, incorporates the bookends of boundaries, integrity in the middle, and being generous on the other side. And I just, I've unpacked that recently. And boundaries sound so simple sometimes, or some people go, God, what do they mean by boundaries? Like, what is that? That is right, this right. big global word out there. And yet boundaries are those simple things that when somebody does something, we feel it in our gut and just go, that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. What that person said just, just struck me in the wrong way. And they're harder sometimes to establish. I actually have a, a slide that I found on boundaries that we say to establish for other things and boundaries that we know we need to protect ourselves to be ourselves. Um, example, I'm a very generous person and I know in my early years in business, it was really hard for me to go. No, Mm -hmm. because I can give myself away. It's like, I'm so eager. I'm so excited about what I do that. It's like, yeah, sure. And then I'm like, God, I'm doing that for nothing. I'm I'm not going to get paid for it. I'm going to put all this time into it. And so a boundary is going, I'm not going to commit to anything on the first glance. I'm going to take 24 hours. So somebody says something like, Hey, sounds like a great idea. Let me, let me have some time to ponder that. If I'm working with a team of people, then it's like, Hey, I need 24 hours to make a decision. So please make sure you get me the information. Those are boundaries. Boundaries can also be, I'm committing to a a wellness program. So I'm taking this time off every day at a specific time. And that's something that you set for yourself and you just let people know what that is. Mm -hmm. Right. But they are the things that when we don't hold ourselves there, it causes an integrity issue. And this is what I also discovered. It's like, you think about integrity, this big global word, like I'm living my values. I'm, I'm my behaviors express my values. And you go, cool. This is all awesome. Right. The opposite of integrity is dissonance. And that was, I got it from her Atlas of the heart. And I just went, Oh, and when you unpack dissonance, Dissonance is that feeling inside when I know this is what I feel about myself, 
and I'm not really doing it. And it's a yucky, not pleasant state to be in. But here's the kicker with dissonance. Dissonance doesn't go away. Like if you do something piss me off, I'll get angry. I'm going to be over it. Dissonance is going to hang with me until I do something that either fixes the behavior that puts me back in line with my values, or I shift my thinking about something so that what I'm doing is okay, or I go to the profound stuff that that Brene talks about, the shame, the blame, the excuses, the uh, burying it, um, numbing it. I'll do anything because dissonance doesn't go away. And we have to figure out how to get to the core of what's wrong, name it in order to fix that. So you're saying, what's the underlying motivation or value that we're trying to protect? And sometimes we don't always think of that. So I think of, you know, I'm at work and I want to say no to my boss or a fellow colleague or someone to say, you know what, I just got too much work to do. I I just can't get it done when you need me to get it done. And yet we know that if we say no right away, there are consequences sometimes. You're put into a compromise. Yeah, there's going to be a physical reaction that we all have before we even know that we are trying to figure out, well, goodness, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And then the brain goes into overload and blah, 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 blah. All of those things. That's an example of where we don't have a safe space, because if you don't feel like you can not so to speak, push back, but say, Hey, that's really great. Uh, yes. And if I do that, I have to drop some other priorities. What are those? If you don't have that safe space, then that's a non-trusting environment. That's an example of a non-trusting environment. But is it that you've made up in your head that you can't say anything because you feel like if I do that, then people are going to perceive me wrong. Then that's an internal part to say, I need to start finding ways to establish a more trusting boundary to be real with myself, with other people. So how do I know the difference? Okay. Cause I, I, I can see that being pretty complicated, you know, especially if you're new in an organization, you got a boss, you know, we don't read other people's minds. I keep telling people all the time, we need to stop acting like we read everybody's minds. We cannot read people's minds folks. Okay. But you say no to a colleague, you say no to your boss there's a knee jerk kind of physical reaction they get of no. Sometimes they say something, sometimes they oh, kind of thing. And boy, you're, you know, my brain goes crazy on, oh God, what are they thinking? Um, and then I'm talking, well, you know, maybe I could get it done in two days or, or, you know, what exactly did you need me to do? And so already I backed off of that. No. You know, <laughs> or I push back and say it can't be done. And the boss looks at me and says, but it has to be done. You, you got to find a way. I expect you to find a way to get all of this stuff done. Even if I know in my mind that this person, if I come up with a good logical reason, this person will, you know, be okay. So that's it. But the noise in my head says, I can't look bad. I have to look like an executive. You know, I was talking to somebody this morning. She said, and this is a person who's been in the workforce 40 some odd years, been an executive, probably at least five, 10 years. And she said, this morning was the first time that I felt like I was an executive. That's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I've seen you as an executive a long time. She says, no, but today was the first day I thought that I had permission to be an executive. 
And so it got me to thinking about this whole thing of who is it that we really have to trust and what's the and what's the dynamic between trusting the environment and trusting myself? Well, you have to have self-trust. So each of those items are where do I trust myself in in all the items from braving, which we can break mm-hmm. out in a second. And where can I trust others? But you brought mm-hmm. up something that I just want to clarify because in the conversational intelligence, there were three levels. There is the sell and tell, there's the slight transactional, and then there's the engaged. And in a transaction like that, where somebody's come in and they're dumping a bunch on you, Brene would say like, let's go through the five C's. Let's go through Mm -hmm. and and paint the full picture. Let's get a better idea. If my first knee injection to you is no, I'm telling you, and that is going to put you into hijack. Like that's a tell. That's like a, it's not an option. It's not a, we've had a discussion. We haven't engaged. It's a, it's a no. And that's going to kick somebody into a distrust state on the other side, which is now going to create the whole kind of boundary defensive response. If in that case, when someone comes in and says, Hey, I really need you to get through this. I really think it's important. It's always possible to go, cool. Um, I'm really busy at the moment. This sounds like a big deal. Can we meet in about 15 minutes and really unpack everything that that takes? Cool. Right. Now I'm setting up space, which is going to allow us to move from a quick, like tell sell to more of that engaged part where I can have a serious discussion with you about what everything you need to have done is going to take and what support for me is going to look like to get that done. Mm -hmm. And we don't often want to do that because we think that's going to be a waste of time or that they won't do it. But that's, that's the smooth way to kind of go, cool. I can appreciate that. Can we arrange to discuss that in a few minutes? Because I really want to unpack everything that you're really talking about. But a lot mm-hmm. of times we feel like we're impulsively got to respond in the moment and we'll go, oh yeah, sure. Not knowing what it is maybe we even committed to, not knowing mm-hmm. everything that needs to be done. But if mm-hmm. we can use our conversation to open that opportunity, then I'm not going to be knee jerk. They're not going to be knee jerk. And we can move into the safer space to have a conversation around what, what are the potential boundaries or what are those things? So going back to Brene's stuff, boundaries is one, and that's knowing what's okay, what's not okay, and, and being able to establish those things. And sometimes it happens after the fact. She talks about circle back, like, oh, God, I just went through that. Like, I don't want this to happen again. Boundary. Worked with an executive, and he realized I need 24 hours. Instead of people coming to him last minute, he said, look, give me 24 hours. Yeah. Now he's established that space. We've learned from the first time. Now we can establish a boundary. Reliability, doing what we say we're going to do and not overpromising. I know this is hard for some types because they really want to promise the moon. But here's the other part in that transaction. If I know you're promising the moon, Denise, and I let you promise it without going, hey, Denise, to let, let's be realistic about this. Let's, let's really look at what this entails. Right. I'm as guilty in that transaction of of trust issues as I am letting you go ahead and fail. Okay. So slow down there. Cause that I think for many managers, it's hard to push back on an employee who says I can get it done. I can get it done when you know, in your gut, not sure you can get it done. Or are you going to make the deadline that we said? And have you really thought about what we're talking about here? Right. And oftentimes it comes across to the other person like, you don't trust me? No, again, it's all we have the conversation. If I go, oh, God, no, there's no way, Denise, you're going to be able to do that. I'm in tell mode. I'm telling you, you can't do Mm -hmm. it, right? 
-hmm. or it's like, cool, Denise, I'm glad you're on board. Um, I want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about this. Will you come into my office and give me the three or four steps or whatever that you feel you're going to be able to accomplish by a certain time frame, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm now going to set up a way to exchange back and forth to gain the clarity needed to ensure you're going to get it done, that you ensure you understand how I expected it to get done and when it's going to be done by instead of just letting it be that short yet. Yeah, okay, sure. You're going to do it. Okay, great. And in my head, I'm going, oh God, here we go again. Denise is going to make that promise and mm-hmm. I'm going to be sitting mm-hmm. here regretting it. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. that's as much on me for not taking that time to work through what mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. And then, so boundaries, setting, what can we do? Reliability, that negotiation about making sure our promises are good is the accountability piece. And this is the part, which for me, I think this really is the really A in the braving. Right. This is the A. This is that part where, you know, accountability, I think sometimes, yeah, I'm Denise, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to micromanage you. No, it's not that kind of accountability. Accountability in this case is even like through the process, we get to the end and we go, God, that was just like, we both struggled with that, Denise. Um, Look, I'd like to compare notes on what happened. You bring yours, I'll bring mine. And let's sit down and think about a better way to happen because I know we both weren't happy with the end result. It's also the accountability on my side where I could go, Denise, you know, God, I'm really sorry. I came to you last minute to provide this with you. And I don't think I gave you enough support or enough information to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to own my part. And then it's going to the fix. And this is the part in trust that we never get to. You hurt me. I hurt you. But we don't make the amends. We don't do Mm -hmm. that last part that says, here's what we're going to do different the next time. We mm-hmm. kind of leave, and we sometimes we don't even accountability is like the apology part. We don't apologize. Like mm-hmm. we don't go, God, I'm really sorry. Like that puts you in a bad way. How can I make that up to you? Mm-hmm. We don't get to that part. And so we leave that state of angst of God, that really went bad. And then it comes around again. And why do yeah. we not have trust? Because the last time we left without establishing trust again. And I know things weren't right. And even from a physiological state, I'm going to remember the angst from the last time. (laughs) And we're down the distrust pattern and interaction patterns that are creating even more and more potential issues. For me, it's what I call restoration. So you 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 do something. We're all human, right? Then we forgive. We may not have to forget. But if you can't restore back to a place where you can allow the person an opportunity to kind of get back on their feet and be in where they were, you know, or you don't have that conversation about it. That's where it goes wonky, I think, because then that's the buildup. Yep. That's the buildup. That's where we know that we don't have, if you will, psychological safety, because we haven't done the repair. We haven't done something to bring us back to a good state. And and I also Uh, think, you know, as we're talking about it, it sounds like it's so massive and time consuming, et cetera. But, you know, we have to keep reminding, you know, each other that trust is built or destroyed in moments. Yep. So you don't have to pick every moment, but you got to be able to look back over a consistent set of moments because that's how I know you. I know you not from what you say you're going to do, but what you actually do and and how you respond when you don't do what you said you're going to do. Right. Right. Or even if I'm I'm dishing it out and I go, hey, Denise, you're going to do it. And you're looking at me going. Yeah. And I can tell from your nonverbals that you are just like freaking out inside. And I just walk away from it. Yeah. Like if I don't engage the fact that I got, woof, Denise, you just said yes, but you look a little apprehensive. Th- that's me not catching that moment of 
of, of building trust. So trust is built in small moments and that feeling of abandonment is built in a small moment. Mm-hmm. And when I go, sure, and my boss doesn't pick up on the fact that I'm like freaking out inside, like I'm like, okay, my boss doesn't care because obviously they should have been able to tell I was freaking out, right? Or I wish I could tell my boss that I was freaking out. Right, exactly. But that's the part where sometimes we don't speak up for ourselves and that becomes the boundary right. too. Where again, hey, I want to say yes, but I've really got to unpack more because right now the thought of doing it scares me. So help me get through it and being able to be open like that. V is the vault. And interesting about the vault, that's probably one of the touchier situations in the workplace, I think, as I've worked through this, because it's not that we're all in competition, but we do want to, we are prideful and we want to do great work. And we want to be put on projects that are seen as important to the organization. Yet we have these feelings sometimes that we're not good enough or, you know, maybe we didn't do it well. We're not just thinking about it. And we want to tell somebody or we want to talk to somebody, you know, and being in HR and, you know, this is the beginning of the year, last end of the year as we're recording this, there will be people lined up at my door in January, February, March, because, They told someone, man, I'm really nervous about this. I didn't get it right. I didn't finish the project. Somehow it gets back up and it becomes the ghost around that individual. And so now they're shut down because people are talking about, they don't know what people are saying because, you know, we smile in your face. Um, And then what is that song? The OJ song, smile in your face, (laughs) the backstabbers. And so that feeling of who's talking about me and what are they saying, and I have no control over that, is often very prevalent in organizations. Oh, absolutely. It's the meeting after the meeting sometimes. Mm -hmm. It is the junior high talk at the waterhole. Like, we can be vicious towards Mm -hmm. them. Did you catch Susie in that last meeting? Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Or or one department against another in an organization. Oh, God, did you hear what's Mm -hmm. happening over in marketing right now? And we dish. Mm -hmm. And what Brene says that's really interesting about that is we do it because indirectly what we're trying to do is build a bond. If I share Mm -hmm. something with you, you're going to share something back with me. And you're going to like, we're exchanging information, which is supposedly building trust. But Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the topic of it, which is toxic, we're not really building trust at all. It is a false Mm -hmm. relationship. And if I do that, there's probably a part of you going, God, if Pam's telling me that, like, what does she say about me when I'm not right? Right. Right. And yes. so it also builds distrust that way because now we start to question other people. And yet mm-hmm. it's not just about, okay, I shared something and I didn't want anybody else to hear it. It's literally that sometimes we have to vent. There's something that happened mm-hmm. and we need to vent. Like a manager mm-hmm. from one group goes with another manager who's, God, I just had this situation. I'm not sure how to deal with it. And somebody, mm-hmm. a cubicle overhears it and they go, God, did you hear about like, and, and there it's out. And, and we, when we start getting the sense that there's people talking about people instead of talking to people, the other part for this trust in an organization is that we put a stop to it when we see it. That we go, hey, you know what? You're talking about so-and-so. It sounds like there's an issue. Maybe you need to go talk to them yourself and find out what the real what the real mm-hmm. case is. Mm-hmm. And we don't shut people down. We'll sit there and listen to it, which indirectly just kind of perpetuates it, right? And it's really, yes. really silent. Yeah, okaying it. It's very subtle, 
but we have to call people when a vault is broken because vault destroys trust on a team so quickly. Oh my goodness. I is back to that integrity thing, right? Yes. Integrity. And, you know, she says it's choosing courage over comfort and choosing what's right over what's fun, fast, or easy and practicing your values, not professing them. It's like, I looked at that and I just go, okay, yeah, totally agree. It's living the values. I will tell you in all the times I've taught dare to lead 75 to 80% of the people I work with don't know what their values are. They have never sorted out and said, this is what I stand for. And so, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. I, I'm not sure I agree with that statement. I think people do have stated values. What I don't think they know is what behaviors have to align to be in integrity. It goes back to your word of dissidence. And I think people suffer more from dissidence than they do not knowing, quote unquote, their values. And what do I do in the moment of that value? I think there's both, though, because what I have found is that some people have never professed that this is what I value. And then they just start feeling really yucky about themselves and they can't pinpoint why. And it's because Mm -hmm. they've never said, God, this is what I value. Like I can say, this is what I value. And now I can see, this is why I am not in line with my values. So not, not that people don't somewhat know something that's important to them, but like to formally sit down and walk through a list of values and go, God, here's the two I'm going to stand for. A lot of people haven't done that. Mm-hmm. or even in cases sometimes where I've had people that haven't done it for four or five years and they go through it and they go, God, I'm really at a different place. And this is what's really most important to me now. And then they, for that next week, it's kind of like this selection bias. They realize because they make them put the values up by their computer, how much those values really impact their daily work mm-hmm. because they just haven't taken the time to recognize it and say, here's what I stand for. And here's what, what's really important. So it is. It's kind of yeah. Okay, maybe I have the other side of it too, where people go, "Oh yeah, no, this is what I value." I'm like, "Well, how do you live that?" Yes, and I think that I get that too. I I think I yeah, and because I think you know, people, most people go around, "Oh yeah, motherhood, apple pie." You know, I agree with all those things. You know, I'm a good person. Be a good person. Love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, all of that kind of stuff like that, right? And I think if you ask people abstractly what their values are, they would they would, you know, say, yeah, that's what I believe. You know, I want to be a good person, have a good heart. I'm going to treat everybody equal, you know, that kind of thing. And and then when you ask them what behaviors line up to, you know, my the, the one I got kicked out of, of, of uh, Sunday school was, you know, when they were teaching the one about, you know, love thy neighbor by themselves by, as, as you love yourself. And the question I had is, what if you don't love yourself? How would you know how to treat your neighbor? And there's a lot of people who don't love themselves. They don't like themselves. They are very critical of themselves. And so they treat others like they treat themselves. But in their mind, love that. Oh, I love my neighbors. And so it's, but the behavior is the true telling of being aligned with those values. Do you change your behaviors to align to the value that you understand and have you dug deep enough on it? So maybe I I agree that both of us are right. I I think we're still coming at it from different areas because I do think that if you ask people what their values are, they will state something, but I do not think they've taken the time to really sit down and say, if I believe this, what does it mean I have to continue Stop, start, and continue to do. Yes, and, 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 and. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I've noted when I do this in the classes is that 
there's a forced choice to two. Mm-hmm. And I will get people that will tell me, oh, well, here's what I really value at home, but this is what I value at work. And I'll yes. go, what's that different? Or, you know, I really can't narrow it down. Like I've got five or six of them. And Renee in her usual term, like when we were there, she's like, yeah, that's chicken shit. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, here's why. If I have six values and I'm trying to live to them, the mm-hmm. people underneath me are going to have a hard time understanding how I'm really prioritizing what it is I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it, because I have so many different values that I'm professing. Mm-hmm. And so this is that really nitty gritty part of saying, God, no, if I really had to narrow it down, this is the, this is the one, or this is the two that are the, the most important to me right now. And then to sit down and go through that painstaking work of, if I truly believe this, what am I doing right now? That's living in line with it. My behaviors reflect it. And what am I doing right now that my behaviors don't, that's creating the dissonance that I feel, but that's work. And some people would rather just be the flimsy. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, that's it. That's what did it. And then they don't completely understand why when they're not operating in that value that they feel kind of icky about themselves. And it's, it's easy to just hide from it. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Right. It's and not, this, also you know, happens, this culture doesn't work for me. And this also happens then when we're in an organization and we see other people that say, yeah, no, here's what I value. This is what's really important. And then they're not following their actions. And you're like, God, there's a mm-hmm. bunch of hypocrites in here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which creates distrust. If they can't do what they say they're going to do, how am I going to be able to trust them to do what I ask them to do if they can't even follow their own value system? So again, mm-hmm. that that whole idea that integrity is important. Now, in her living big, she says, we have to put boundaries down. Now, I have seen people use that as the sledgehammer. Like, instead of like, oh yeah, this is a boundary. This is what's important to me. It's like, don't do this. It becomes the tell. Like, here's my boundary. Don't cross it. And then the person mm-hmm. kind of comes up to the thing and they go, and they go, sorry, you, I'm sorry, you didn't make my boundary. And we hold the other person in judgment because they pushed our boundary again. No, 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 no. Integrity is knowing that I can still look and be generous and the, the non-judgmental part to other people, even if I've put that down. Integrity means I'm living into my values and I'm also going to be generous to other people to understand where are they coming from in that moment. But it's a slippery slope because there's times I need to put boundaries down and then there's other times I have to understand the other person's situation and give a little maybe to my boundary or where I'm at and back and forth. And so integrity, I have a picture where it's like a seesaw and the, the integrity is the, the little fulcrum point. Yeah, sometimes in the I really have to put establish more boundaries for myself to stay in my integrity. And sometimes I've got to bend a little to be a little bit more generous to live into my integrity. I don't know. That one really hit me because that whole idea of dissonance, it's like, God, I've had that yucky feeling, but I've never established it as that. And to know that I've either got to really get hard and go, God, I got to change my behavior or just adjust the value or adjust my concept of myself related to that. Maybe I'm a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and I just anticipate that I'm going to be able to get all these things done. So now I'm beating myself up because I haven't gotten all those things done. Well, maybe I need to change Mm -hmm. and go, God, that's, that's an unrealistic picture for where I need to be. And here's Mm -hmm. a more realistic picture so that I'm living in line with that. Because again, that caused me to strive to be too much. And how do we get that level perspective? Right. The end is the, the next one. <laughs> oh, ah, the next one. Non-judgment. 
non-judgment. <laughs> non-judgment. <laughs> I ask for what I need and you can ask for what you need. And we can talk about what's really important without being in judgment. And I will tell you that that is so hard because our brain is wired for judgment. Our brain is wired to look for what's, what's wrong. What's, what's off yeah. what's different from me. What's different from my past. We will look at it and our in, innate reaction is that's bad. That that's whatever. And so mm-hmm. it's important when we're in situations to realize when we've moved into black and white thinking, when we have moved into us, them, when we have moved into right, wrong, like where, where have we, that's, that's the warning flag in our head to go, God, I'm in judgment right now. I need to back down <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that my way is the only way. And I need to back up and go like, just, we had, when we were talking about integrity, we yep. both were right. There's a larger picture and we can right. in that and that's okay. We don't have to be judgmental and go, God, no, you're, you're way off. Well, it's the personalization of the judgment. I think that's Correct. the issue. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's my things of, you know, we can disagree, we can have a conflict, and then we can go into rancor. And rancor is personalizing the disagreement. So now I think you're not okay, um, you know, fill in the blank, because you believe that everybody has values, and I don't believe that, you know. And so it's that tension of how do you live in the, I can disagree with you without it being all about you, you know, every, the hardest person to listen to is someone we've dubbed as a jerk. Yet a, a, anybody who is dubbed as a jerk sometimes is right. But you can't hear it once you make that judgment that this person is a loser or a non-value or, you know, a jerk out of it. And yet, and and if we say that our value, going back to values, because, you know, I'm not quite ready to give up on that one, <laughs> that, you know, we treat people with respect. How do you treat a jerk with respect? How, and it is non-judgment. And I think in Adam Grant's work on Think Again, he brings up yeah. this um, idea that there's a lot of times that at work, especially there's tasks and we need to get tasks done. So we need to do tasks. And when the task isn't done, it becomes personal. It becomes an attribute of that person's character that the task mm-hmm. wasn't done. You didn't get that done for me. You're a bad person. Instead of seeing it from the perspective, like flip sides, I didn't get the task done. And oh my God, I didn't get it done because of all this other stuff that happened. No, you didn't get it done. You're a bad person. So we move that judgment from something into the character of the person. And that really starts to create distrust. One, because now I've got the story in my head that I don't trust you because the way I stated it. And now I've put you on the defensive because I've put you in a spot that you can't get out of. I mean, Trust is built on small moments of interaction. And at any point, if we do something that creates the nick against that distrust that sends us, you know, into a adrenaline cortisol, a defensive mode, we create a defensive response back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so it is really breaking down to the level of our conversation then in what I say and do, my behaviors that can take us from a moment of, oh, you know, I need to back up because I... I was, I was thinking something that's not true. Please explain to me why you didn't get that done. Tell me generosity, you know, generosity that moves, you know, non-judgment moves into generosity and generosity is driven by curiosity. We have to be able to have a generous assumption or at least somehow go, there's gotta be something else besides what it is I have in my head. And to then look at other people and ask them, 
open the conversation. And I know I actually changed speaking of values. I know I changed my values because of this work on trust. Because From what to what? So I fine tuned it because I we used to okay. say that like the quest for knowledge was like the biggest thing for me. And everybody who knows me, like the books on my shelves, like, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, you're, right, right. you're very much on a right. need to know. But what I discovered was that part of a drive I need to know came out the wrong way with others because I could quote this and quote that. And I'd have like, I know I'm right. And right. It came across that way with my need to be right, which comes across this judgment that if I'm right, then you're wrong. And I was mm-hmm. like, God, that's just not where I want to be. So I switched mm-hmm. it to curiosity because it's still mm-hmm. the quest to know. And I can have all the books and the thing, but curiosity leaves it to, I can know everything in the book in the world, but I don't know where you're at. And I don't know your specific situation in the context with which you're in. So please tell me about that. And I need to be curious about that before I even think that what I know is going to help you in your situation. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, the whole idea of curiosity. But I also want to add something that I've started um, noticing um, in general, and someone else brought it up, particularly around school systems and whatnot. But this was in a work, this is in a workplace, a, a traditional workplace out of it. It's leaders dealing with learned helplessness in the workplace and behaviors of learned helplessness. And the last two You know, this idea of non-judgment and generosity seem to conflict on that area. So for those of you who don't understand the concept of learned helplessness, there's one side of it where the boss assumes that if my team does badly, then I'm looked on and reflected as badly. The other is, is that either um, HR or the leader is constantly not pushing the envelope on what they're team can do or what another person can do. And in essence, they will block pushing further, learning new technology, figuring out um, how to rewrite or establish a process, causing them to have higher levels of performance because a few people will come in and go, well, we can't do it. We didn't learn it. She's mean. She, he, didn't say it to me in the right way. And then suddenly we have this sympathy for you didn't say it the right way when what they said was the right thing. They just didn't say it in a way that allowed the person to feel like they weren't in judgment. You didn't do it. And I have to hold you accountable for it. But And I have 50 excuses why I didn't get it done. And my problem is maybe I'm not good at prioritizing my work. Well, I'm doing all of this stuff and it's just not this and you don't understand. And so there's this learned helplessness that begins to show up in the organization. That's one that I don't know that I see in a lot of writing um, and research about how this idea of learned helplessness, particularly in schools. So we have schools that are charter schools. We have schools that are um, schools for uh, so, low socioeconomic areas. And we assume that those kids can't get to the next level. And so we don't push their performance to the next level. It's because we don't engage them in their performance. Yeah. I, in my counseling degree, I studied control theory. And it's very much like Brene, where you have to think about the physiology of emotions Mm-hmm. you're aware of what you label as your emotion. And then you're aware of what you're thinking and your behaviors that follow. 
And the idea is to empower the kids to come up with solutions instead of going, oh, no, I can't do this, that that's not permitted. It's like, okay, I, I had difficulty doing this because, but here's, here's at least an option. Here's a way out. Here's, here's something that I can tangibly think about as an alternative. So when I come to right. this, oh, this is impossible. I can't do it. You're not permitted to come in with that without coming in and saying, I'm really struggling with X. I need to get better at this. I'm thinking I might need X, Y, Z or something. And it forces the kids to learn a different response pattern. And I don't see that coming in some of the schools and I don't see it reinforced in homes. Like I just, I dealt with a principal recently who told me about misbehavior between a kindergartner and a teacher where she's the, the kindergartner's beating the teacher. And the mm-hmm. teacher's trying to defend herself and the coat has like some knobby things on it. And she, she's actually getting hurt. And mm-hmm. she pushed the button, had reinforcement come down. And now the kids who are standing next to this one, instead of being scared too, because the kid's out of control, they're laughing right. at the teacher for an inability to gain control over the student. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow. She said, but the worst part, I had to do a behavioral poll. I had to pull the parents in. I had to let them know that this behavior was inappropriate. We tried to calm the student down, but they're not allowed to hit the teacher. The parents wrote a scathing email back to the district office afterwards and said, if your teachers can't control the classroom, it's their fault. Now, what do you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. to go back when I, again, when I was doing the, the work with control theory, they literally set up parenting classes. They set up the understanding of what this was. They actually put and trained students to be recess monitors in in this model so that if there was a dispute Mm -hmm. the kids could come to them and learn how to get through the dispute there was always a teacher as well around so it wasn't Mm -hmm. like okay Mm -hmm. you just go to that person whatever but it was a full-fledged top to bottom even to the parents to understand here's what we are going to be doing in order to get that reinforced and to get people to see the positive outcomes from it tough to get done these days Mm -hmm. because of funding how do you fund some of that um, personnel, because there's been a bunch of teachers that have left. The classrooms are at overcapacity right now, and it's difficult for them to maintain control in some situations. And so it's just these compounding factors where I almost want to say, we got to start going to the small businesses to get people to donate time to go into these places and help them get some of this stuff. Yeah. And figure out what that, which, you know, years and years and years ago, that was something that companies did do is the schools were places where they did bring in resources and others to come in and help the teachers. And they were resourced and they were resourced that way. Um, You know, I'd love to keep going with this, but unfortunately we've hit that time, you know, we can't do it, but we were able to get through braving, which is really pretty cool um, because they're just a bunch of questions, particularly about flipping it on what does learned helplessness look like in an organization? Because I think uh, oftentimes, if we're not careful, our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs promote learned helplessness in the organization. Mm. Not intentionally. So I don't want you guys calling me out on that. I don't think it's intentional. But I do think that if we're not careful, some of the performance monitors, some of the ways we think about hiring, some of the hidden biases that we have in the organizations do set us up for we don't hold the same standards for everyone. And we get into discussions about capabilities and being able to do things. 
And when we think that someone is less than capable of doing it the same way I do it or have the same background that I have, then suddenly, oh, we shouldn't work them that way. We shouldn't hold them to this standard. We shouldn't da, 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 da. And so it's a slippery, it's a hidden conversation. It doesn't always come out, but it certainly is the elephant in the room. Well, as we started this, trust is built in small moments. And Mm -hmm. it is identifying those small moments where trust is built or where trust is not built and being able to call those out that will make the difference down the road. And so, you know, whether it's understanding the components of psychological safety that trigger us where we've got to have, you know, if we have a threat to status, if we have a threat to certainty or a threat to our autonomy and being able to do things or where we don't feel like we relate to people, we don't think things are fair, which is what that Mm -hmm. whole part you got. If we can start to pinpoint the trigger points of where we go, ooh, I'm not feeling trusting. Now I can pinpoint the move into a new behavior and a new conversation that will help us move into trust. But when we don't take action against the first time that something triggers it, it becomes the snowball that just gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse each time it comes around. And then it's hard. You know, that's the same thing in Gottman's work in relationships. You know, it starts out as oh, you didn't take the dog out and we start becoming critical. Well, as soon as we become critical, now we become defensive. Mm-hmm. And when we start becoming defensive, we start saying things that kind of be rude and we might even hold people in contempt. Like, oh my God, I can't mm-hmm. believe you just did that. And then it leads even to stonewalling. It was like, I just don't even want to talk to you anymore. And mm-hmm. it happens in work just like those relationships, but it comes down to those moments where- mm-hmm. How do we restore the trust? Because when we when we recognize that something wasn't right and we go back to restore it, it actually strengthens the relationship. So that's the yeah, the bonds between people. If we if we can work on that part, it's a slow build back, but it works. All right, guys, you know what I'm gonna say? If you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it. Because I guarantee it'll be a conversation that will help you get better at being the person that you want to be every single day. To be able to close the gap between where you are now to where you want to be. To give you the remarkable lessons that you need to know so that you become the leader that your heart really desires. And with that, we'll see you next week. Uh, Pam, we'll see you next month. Thank you so much as always for being so awesome. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.